The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Hi, everyone. So um, I'll put myself on spotlight. You're welcome to go back to gallery view if that's preferable for you. So in reflecting about what to speak about this morning, kind of looking back over what we have been covering in this time together, in this particular session, this group. And also I think influenced some by the retreat, um, the direction, the movement of the month-long retreat that I just finished teaching. I thought to explore a little bit about the kind of wisdom that is cultivated, that is developed as we engage with this practice, with this path, with this Eightfold Path, and why that is supportive, why that wisdom helps the mind to let go let go of its habits, its patterns around suffering, struggle, stress, dissatisfaction. Sometimes as we practice, as we get more familiar with what our minds are doing, we see these habits of mind, habitual tendencies that... uh, don't feel good. And we might wonder, like, why does my mind do that? Why why does it choose to do that? Because we can see that those habits and patterns are painful often. For myself, the pattern of anger, for instance, you know, as I really got familiar with it and saw how deeply conditioned it was, how habitual it was. It's like, why why does my mind choose to do this? As I felt into how painful it was with the arising of that anger. And yet also as we observe, as we see what goes on in our minds, in in what's happening, we, we also start potentially to see some of the deeper roots of why we might do that. The Buddha pointed to our suffering, our stress, the ways in which we get caught, the reactivity, all of the miserable frustration, all of the ways in which we as human beings end up feeling 
being so caught and stressed and suffering. He pointed back to the the, the craving, the wishing for things to be another way, the kind of holding on, the clinging to things. And with the pattern of aversion, for instance, of which anger is a flavor, that particular pattern is trying to get rid of things that we don't like, trying to push them away in some fashion. With anger, often it's trying to get rid of them with a kind of a, almost a violence, a kind of a movement to destroy or obliterate. Another version of aversion is, is kind of um, fear, the sense of wanting to take ourselves away from something that we don't like. And so those, those um, patterns are, you know, they're trying in some way to help us to be happy. And this is the deeper kind of thing the Buddha pointed to, that these habits, these patterns of greed, aversion, delusion, They're trying to, they're trying to make us happy. And this is, this is important to recognize that, that all of these habits and patterns that have created stress and suffering in our lives have actually thought they were doing something useful for us. With the anger, I, I did begin to recognize at one point there was a really clear understanding. I even remember where I was when I, when I noticed this, it was in the first few months of my meditation practice. And I, I realized, Oh, this anger that I'm experiencing, I think it's going to make the other person miserable. I think it's going to make them change how they are for me to have this anger. So there were some beliefs in there. And at the same time, the, the, the mind recognized that I was pretty miserable in the experience of the anger. And so both the exploration or the understanding of the anger itself was suffering in the moment and the belief underneath it that somehow it was going to make me feel better when the other person, when I somehow stopped the other person from doing what I thought, what, 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 I, what they were doing. So the, the kind of sense of the, um, the anger thought it was helping me. And so the, I think often what goes on is that we are so focused. We're so, our minds tend to be focused on the idea of what those habits, those reactive habits and patterns are going to accomplish for me in my case with the anger, to make the other person miserable so they'd like know they were wrong and somehow do the other thing or something. You know, it was, it was complete delusion, actually, when I really looked at it. You know, it was like, no, this is not going to make the other person stop doing what they're doing. And so um, the, uh, the view underneath the anger was motivating that pattern or habit. So the anger itself, the greed itself, is uh, 
kind of the the activity of mind that thinks it's going to do something for us to make us happy. But those activities of mind are based in a kind of uh, belief or view. And this is really where the wisdom we, um, the Buddha points to, there's just a whole bunch of mistaken ideas in there mistaken views. For instance, around that, what I saw in that moment was that, yes, I thought that this was going to, you know, make the other person stop doing what they were doing. But in the meantime, I was pretty miserable in the very experience of that, of that anger, that the mind was actually making itself miserable in that arising of that anger. That was a shock. That was kind of a shock to me. And so to begin to see the mistaken views, beliefs that underlie these habits and patterns, this is really the kind of wisdom the Buddha pointed to. When we can understand that these views that are the ground out of which those habits and patterns arise, when we can actually see that those views are mistaken, our mind starts to let go of the things that arise out of them. There's so many views in our minds, (laughs) so many views, uh, many views of which are created by, you know, kind of our upbringing, our families, our culture, our conditioning. Uh, All of our views are are kind of, uh, many of our views have that kind of flavor to them what we believe as a part of this family or a part of this culture. And then there are views that are more human in nature, a kind of a deeper level of view, a perspective that we could say is kind of, it's kind of embedded perhaps in our biology to some extent. the way in which our sense apparatus works. The way that things kind of feel to us as human beings. And yet the Buddha in his own exploration of where suffering arises from, you know, not only so not only that the suffering is these habits and patterns of reactivity, but the views that underlie those, the beliefs that underlie those. He identified three core beliefs that we as humans tend to share. We tend to take what is impermanent to be permanent. We tend to attribute permanence to what is impermanent. We tend to attribute happiness or reliability to something that is unreliable. And we tend to attribute self to what is not self. These 
these views are again that there's there's some ways, especially the one around permanence, attributing what is we tend to attribute what is uh, impermanent. We tend to attribute permanence to what is impermanent. Some of that really comes from our our biology and the way our mind is designed to work to organize to organize the world to navigate the world. Our um, more recent, uh, in the last, I don't know, 50, 100 years of, of science and physics, we have so discovered the unreliable nature of reality itself. The impermanent nature of reality itself, the changing nature of reality itself. There's no stability at the deepest level, the subatomic level. There's no stability, always constantly changing. And yet, you know, the, the nature of that, those subatomic particles, the way they work, even that tends to create the illusion of stability. I mean, this, this, uh, this thing I have in front of me, you know, it's, it's got some mass to it. It's got some stability to it. It feels like it's got some solidity to it. I mean, I know from some science that it's largely empty space. It's just like the rapidity of the movement of those electrons spinning around the nucleus that create the, the hardness, create that sense of hardness. And yet the Buddha, the Buddha um, um, I think, was pointing more towards the unreliability, the instability of our actual experience, more than pointing to instability or impermanent, the impermanent nature of the, of the world itself. He did talk about that. He did talk about the arising and... Um, passing of world systems and, you know, kind of the, to, to kind of frame the nature of experience as impermanent in general. But he was mostly pointing in our experience through the meditative practice to begin to recognize the impermanent nature of our actual experience. Because that's where, that's where the mind kind of hooks. It thinks something in experience is permanent or lasting and because of that thinks that's a reliable place i'll hang on to that i'll 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 do something to get that or get rid of that or we think that getting rid of it is what will make us reliably happy or holding on to something will make us reliably happy based on this idea that there is something stable to hold on to <laughs> So these, these views are so deeply embedded in our, uh, in our, in our kind of human system. And yet they are not what I would call hardwired. The Buddha kind of showed that in his own understanding that these views are not, they're not hardwired in our human system. They can be seen through. And that as we see through those, the mind then lets go of its tendencies to cling, to crave, 
to want things to be other than they are. So the Eightfold Path kind of helps us to, uh, first of all, I think it helps us to see the habits and patterns of reactivity. So that first layer that the Buddha points to of like where the suffering is, suffering is in the, those, those reactive, when we're, when we are, when greed is in our mind, when aversion is in our mind, we are experiencing suffering in that moment. And that's one of the first things we start to really recognize. And the Eightfold Path helps us to recognize those, those experiences as being suffering itself, as opposed to, uh, you know, not, not seeing the suffering, but kind of believing the, the view or the kind of the idea that if I follow through on that habit or pattern of mind, then I'll be okay. Like my, like with my, with my anger, you know, the idea hooked to the idea that it was going to help me somehow feel better. The meditative, the, the eightfold path helps us to, to, um, to see to, uh, the, the path of meditation, of observing our experience, helps us to see that those reactive patterns are themselves painful. And in my own experience, you know, also may begin to point out the views that are underlying them. And so the, the first part of the Eightfold Path, wise view, wise understanding, this is really the kind of reorientation. This is the Buddha telling us, you know, this is the perspective. This greed, aversion, and delusion are not helpful. These, these um, suffering is created by that craving in the mind. The, the uh, second noble truth, that, that suffering exists and it arises with that craving. And that it's possible to let go of that craving and realize the ending of suffering. So the Four Noble Truths are really stated around this, the level of this reactive mind, the, the, the mind that craves and holds on to. And so this is the beginning of the wisdom orientation. What we, we start by learning, by, by hearing a little bit about why the mind does what it does. And so the, the uh, right view begins on the path with a reorientation, a little bit of hearing something perhaps that, that points, us, points to us, well, maybe there's another way. Maybe there's another way other than these reactive habits and patterns I've been living my life by. And so perhaps we, we step onto the path we engage with some intentionality. And the, um, the middle section of the Eightfold Path, uh, wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood, helps us to kind of not engage in the most obvious forms of those reactive habits and patterns. So the wise understanding, the wise view points out that, you know, engaging in those habits and patterns is not useful. And so the, the second part of the Eightfold Path, looking at our actions to, 
explore the possibility of not acting in the most harmful ways out of those reactive habits and patterns. And so it, it starts to help us to be able to see the value actually of a different way of engaging rather than out of our usual habits and patterns, a different, a different approach. The real uh, wisdom is cultivated in the third part of the Eightfold Path where we begin to do the work of exploring our bodies and minds. Wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration. So that part of the practice carries the exploration from what we've heard through kind of the more reflective side of things. Gee, this sounds like it might be useful. Um, Maybe also using the reflective practices, you know, the kind of reflecting on these truths can help us to, uh, well, there can be some deep change actually through through reflection. For instance, around impermanence, Simply reflecting on the um, what the Buddha called the five subjects of frequent recollection. I'm the, of the nature to age. I'm of the nature to sicken. I'm of the nature to die. I'll, you know, everything that I have will become separated from me in some fashion or other. And then the the last reflection is, so these first four reflections of the five subjects for frequent recollection are around the impermanent nature of our lives, of our lives and what we have. And then the last reflection is around um, our choices, our actions, how our actions will shape who we are. That if we act out of, unwholesome qualities of mind out of reactivity that will tend to shape more unwholesome qualities of mind. If we act out of wholesome qualities of mind, out of love, out of compassion, out of wisdom, out of generosity, that tends to shape those this based on the kind of deep truth. The Buddha said at one point, whatever we frequently ponder becomes the inclination of the mind. We frequently ponder ill will frequently ponder, craving, sense, desire, that's what will become more predominant in our minds. We frequently engage in love, compassion, joy, wisdom, that will become more predominant in our minds. And so these five subjects for frequent recollection, even at the level of recollection, just reminding ourselves, yep, everybody that I love Actually, at one point, Carlos Castaneda is said to have said this to one of his students. Some of you may have read some of Carlos Castaneda's books. <laughs> I read them as a teenager. He, uh, he is said to have said to someone who was kind of you know, complaining or you know, saying, I, I just can't figure out how to have a spiritual life. And Carlos Castaneda is said to have said to them, Reflect regularly 
that you and everyone you love will die in no particular order and you do not know when. And you'll soon have a spiritual life if you do that. This is essentially what the Buddha is pointing to with these five subjects for frequent recollection. Bring this into your mind regularly. We tend to forget this fact. The nature of our minds to believe in the permanence, we believe we're immortal. I mean, we don't believe we're immortal when we stop for a moment to think about it but we act as though we were immortal. The um, Indian epic story, the Mahabharata, points to this also. At one point, uh, one of the characters in the story is asked, what's the most amazing thing? And the, uh, the character says, well, it seems to me that the most amazing thing is that every day we notice or we can see that other beings are dying. But we, for not one moment, think this might happen to me. That's the most amazing thing. And it is kind of amazing <laughs> that we manage to forget this regularly. And so just that reflective piece can help us to remember, just bring it into our minds. So that, that's also a, a kind of wisdom. The first kind of wisdom is, is uh, said to be the wisdom that we gain through hearing, through reading, through taking information in. The second level of wisdom said to be the kind of wisdom that comes with bringing reflection into our minds. And so this is not a trivial level of of understanding that comes with this remembering these truths, the truth of just just the truth of the impermanent nature, that I will die, and, and I don't know when. I mean, I might not live through this day. Remembering that, it actually doesn't have to be a, a depressing thing. To me, it kind of makes me appreciate what's here. Makes me appreciate the time that I do have. And perhaps to spend it a little more wisely than being caught in some kind of reactive habit or pattern of mind. At one point, I was doing dishes in my, uh, you know, just washing dishes. And the mind was a little grinchy. I was kind of like, oh, I don't want to be doing this. And, and the, the wisdom, ref- the reflection arose. You know, it was a wisdom reflection. And so it was, it was this, this level of, of understanding. It's like, well, you know, I don't know how long I'm going to have to live. You know, is this how I want to spend my last moments with this grinchiness about washing dishes? And just that reflection helped that state of mind to fall away. So reflection, reflection is very powerful. And then there's the level of wisdom that comes with the seeing, the the mindful seeing of 
the impermanent, unreliable, conditioned, not-self nature of our experience. With the meditative seeing, we begin to enter into our human experience at a deeper level than we normally engage with it in our daily lives. At our normal level of engagement, we're, you know, we're, we're operating based on a lot of shortcuts, actually. Our minds kind of will create the world. So much of what we see and experience is it's created by our minds. It's created by, you know, perception kind of, just just the, the kind of looking around this room as I'm looking around. What actually is going on is there's a lot of, like, visual stimulus coming in, and it's it's never the same in any two moments. It's kind of like if you had a really jumpy camera moving around, if you watched the film of that, it would be kind of disorienting. But what our minds do is smooth it out. Our minds will... Um, create the illusion or the the sense of the stability of the world. We can start to, with our um, meditation, begin to see the level of which we attribute permanence to what is impermanent. And again, that understanding, when we see the mistaken belief of attributing permanence to what is impermanent. Our minds begin to let go, to reorient, to understand that, you know, these, these, uh, these three things, these three fundamental mistakes, impermanent, unreliable, not self are kind of built on each other. The, the impermanent nature of experience kind of underlies the belief or the, the, um, the impermanent nature of experience when it's taken to be permanent underlies the belief that there's something reliable to hold on to. And so the, the impermanence Seeing the impermanence not only undermines the belief in the permanence, but also undermines the belief in the reliability. So the the mind basically recognizing the radically changing nature of experience simply stops clinging because it doesn't make any sense to cling. I'm going to stop for just a second while the sound is right outside my door. So the, um, the mind begins to understand it doesn't make any sense to cling to something that it had believed was permanent. And also that it doesn't make any sense to cling to something that is, because it is impermanent, it is not reliable as a lasting source of happiness. So the unreliability of experience is directly related to the impermanent nature of experience. 
And then the sense of self is also an attribution of permanence to something that is changing, dynamic. Again, the belief in I or me as a kind of an entity that is somehow stable, progressing through time and space, as opposed to really just a changing set of processes at work. So the exploration around impermanence helps us to see all three of these. Sometimes the flavor of the seeing is more in the realm of, wow, that's just not very stable. That's changing all the time. Sometimes the realm of the understanding as we observe our experiences is in the the recognition of, yeah, that's not going to make me happy to hold on to that. You know, it's, it's like the, 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 the recognition is that the mind is going for some kind of happiness where it's just not going to be found. And so that's the kind of understanding or the insight into the unreliability of experience. Or sometimes the flavor of the understanding is more around what I thought, who I thought I was. It's not that. The sense of me, of I doing something, needing something, is exposed as just a construction, again, a construction of the mind. Because what we were taking, if we, if we start looking at what we take to be I, me, mine, we see that it's also just a changing set of conditions. It's just things coming and going. There's, there's, there's not a me in here. There's not an I choosing to do things. That the I, the feeling of the I, we, we, one, one way into this exploration is to explore what does it feel like? What is this I that, that I think of as who I am? And we begin to see that it's very different at different times. Changing. Something I take to be I, you know, this was really clear on one moment on one of the three-month courses I, I, um, I was on, where in a split second, the sense of who I was changed so radically. It changed from a sense of, the I being a really analytical, intelligent, like, you know, person who knows what go, what's going on to uh, in a split second to a sense of just being like a child delighting in the noisy sound of a truck that just drove up in a split second shift from this analytical sense of being right to Wow, it's a truck. And the, the, the contrast there, the contrast that is like, where did that 
analytical being disappeared to. It's like <laughs> it was clear it was not stable in that moment. So the, the, the meditative exploration begins to undermine these very deeply held views that things are permanent, reliable, and self. And it can be a little bit um, disconcerting, to say the least, (laughs) to see this. These views that there is a permanent, reliable place to land, that there's a me kind of navigating the world. These things are so familiar and comfortable for us that when we begin to recognize it's all based on mistake, a mistaken view, our minds go, wait a minute, (laughs) this has got to be wrong. Or, or there's a sense that this, in the, this place in practice, it's, it, the, the, the name for it is called disenchantment. We begin to get disenchanted with our familiar ways of being in the world because we've seen that these, the way, our familiar way of being in the world was based on mistaken understanding. And yet, we don't simply, our minds aren't simply designed in a way to just go, oh, well, that's, that, that's the way it is. Okay, I'll let go of that. Our minds are kind of designed to, to go, no, I want to figure this out. It's got to be, it's got to be, there's got to be a way to be happy with these beliefs. And so we, we have this time where we're becoming disenchanted with these views. It's not, it's not simply one time of seeing them and suddenly, you know, they're gone. <laughs> It's a, it's a process, and there's a process around uh, the letting go of those views. It feels, it, you know, it kind of feels like, sometimes it can feel like there's fear or confusion or boredom. One of my favorite um, ways of reflecting on this time is like homesickness. Our habits and patterns of mind that we felt like we're so comfortable, like slipping into a comfortable old shoe, you know, it's like that shoe is no longer available. We want to go back to it, but we know it doesn't make any sense to go back to it. And yet there isn't quite a new feeling of home anywhere. And so there's a feeling of a loss of a feeling of a homesickness of, and the, the exploration at this point, actually, is just to recognize too that experience of homesickness, that experience of confusion or fear or boredom, or sometimes it can feel like just with the impermanent nature of things, it can feel a little bit like being bombarded with stuff. The exploration is this is. This is what it's like to be a human being feeling homesick. This is what it's like to be a human being feeling fear or boredom. This is what it's like 
that too, that relationship to these misperceptions is also another impermanent, unreliable phenomenon. It's just another thing happening in our minds. So there's a few minutes for reflection or comments, questions. Nicholas. I wanted to share about reflecting on death. Um, been a lot of reflecting on death and I uh, actually in the sutta the Buddha says what, what is the purpose of reflecting on death and he says beings intoxicated with life commit misconduct of body speech and mind and I think for me there was actually a lot of greed where I was reflecting on death to scare myself and getting something to happen in my practice and so I just wanted to share that it took me a while to realize oh we reflect on death because sometimes we feel like we're really hot stuff Maybe you're reminded that we're going to die. And, you know, we don't reflect on death because suddenly we panic and freak out and decide to go meditate because we might die today and we want to be calmer. (laughs) There is a way that we can pretty much use any tool that the Buddha offers as a version or as a kind of a self-flagellation. So really useful to notice when that's happening. Like, oh, I should do this because it will be better for me or or as opposed to, you know, kind of what is skillful about it, what's helpful about it. So, yeah, thanks for for pointing to that. Thank you, Nicholas. Joey. Hello, this is actually Liz. I'm just on my <laughs> husband's lap. Hi, Liz. <laughs> I, I just came off a retreat with you. I've never been in this group before. And I just like you, I just wanted to say that the talk was like exactly kind of where I'm at in the reintegration of that moment you described of seeing the eyes impermanent from like, I am analytical to I'm something else I feel like I've I'm what like you put words to what these two days have been I'm watching the disintegration of the I as like I know how to do things to like I am a vulnerable open-hearted human being who has no clue what is going on it's a it's a scary and much more tender place to live in so thank you it's such a gift to just show up here and and uh, be here with you all. Thank you. So nice to see you, Liz. Your 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 camera's a little fuzzy, so yeah. I didn't recognize you. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, this the, it's it, there's so much truth to that. That you know, there's the, anatta, the truth of not self, is actually staring us in the face. It's actually staring us in the face. We just don't recognize it. And so, you know, the seeing of it in this way, you know, when we can start to see, oh, this me is like not what I thought it was. It it can feel um, vulnerable and it can feel unstable. 
And yet it is what's been happening all along. It's just, you know, correcting that perspective. So, yeah. Thank you, Liz. Augusta. Hi, Andrea. Thank you so much for everything. Liz, thanks for inspiring me to unmute. I was also just came off that retreat. I want to share in that yesterday, so I, I turned my computer on for the first time just to come onto this. And just like, as it was coming on, I could feel so much aversion and just, so I'm excited to close it again and (laughs) (laughs) see what happens next. But yesterday I was walking, I live in Noe Valley in San Francisco and I was just walking around a little bit and I could recognize a terror in me just like trying to cross the street or walk down the sidewalk. And it was very interesting to experience that. And I don't know if it's similar to what you were speaking to Andrea about looking around the room and the bombardment, or if it was a different experience, but I wanted to share in about that and see if you had any reflection. Cause I did, I did a walk the day before. Um, also just from my apartment, but it was more just up in the hills. But here I was on the streets. Yeah. It was not comfortable. I'm you know, it, to with it. it could be related to many things. I think it's more that there, you know, like the terror there. It's like it, it could be useful to be curious about what's this related to? You know, what's this, this terror connected to? For myself coming off of long retreat, I did find the kind of overwhelm of stimuli you know it's like it it was just too much almost and that too much kind of feeling can lead to that sense of you know i don't know how to navigate this i don't know what to do here um and so that can create that but there can also be other other things so you know it's kind of curious about what what it feels like it's connected to 